Hello, and welcome to another episode of A Dash of Science. I'm your host, Chris. Each week, we take a topic in science, engineering, math, medicine, and even history, and break it down through a lens of science and logic in a way everyone can enjoy and understand. So sit back, relax, and enjoy A Dash of Science. Welcome back to the show. I'm Chris. And I'm Carrie. And this week we are talking about uh, NASA's Day of Remembrance. Uh, have, have you ever heard of that before we started talking about it for the show? I had not heard about it, but now that I've been doing research, I saw it's all over the place. Yep, yep. So NASA Day of Remembrance, if you're not aware, uh, is a day set aside by NASA each year to reflect and honor the astronauts from the Apollo 1 uh, Columbia and Challenger disasters, uh, which all occurred between uh, January 27th and February 1st, uh, roughly about 20 years apart. So late 60s, late 80s, uh, early 2000s uh, timeframes. So this week, I thought that we would do a special episode just kind of talking about those uh, things that happened and, and maybe get a little bit more education out there for people who don't really know like the specifics of what happened. I didn't know until I started doing research. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's, it's some things like kind of ring a bell. Like, oh yeah, I heard about that, especially like with, uh, with Columbia, which happened like in our time spans. But, you know, Challenger, I mean, I, I think that was, I had to be like eight maybe six somewhere in there some in that time frame obviously too young to know anything that's going on yeah me too i was like four or two yep but uh before we get into that uh, i just want to remind everybody that we are still doing our patreon drive uh sponsored by coffee gator uh, so you can join us at patreon.com slash dash of science at the one dollar two dollar or five dollar tier and if you join, besides getting a sweet sticker pack and a special role on our Discord chat server, uh, what else do we got on there? No, there's some other stuff on there. Uh, access to content and stuff. Uh, you also get a, uh, a ticket to go into our drawing. Uh, one ticket per dollar amount times two. That's a very difficult way of saying that. <laughs> that is a very difficult you way. Get, uh, two tickets per dollar that you pledge at. That's better. So two for one four for two, 10 for five, etc. cetera. Uh, and uh, we'll do our drawing and you could win a 32 ounce steel uh, French press from Coffee Gator. It's also, a nice one. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's really heavy duty. I've, I like the one that we're using a lot. Uh, but it's if you can also go to coffeegator.com and use discount code uh, Quark, Q-U-A-R-K, for a 15% off whatever you order and support, and support the show that way. Did you set the, the password on that? Uh, I did, yes. Yeah, I was going to, uh, this whole time I've been like, he had to have done that himself. Yeah, not password, the discount code. That's what I meant, sorry. <laughs> it's not a password to anything, just to it's be clear. It's like a password. <laughs> it's a password, except for that everybody knows it and uses it. Yeah, so it's like a not secret <laughs> yeah, password. It's the exact opposite of a password. <laughs> That's not true. Everyone knows Open Sesame, but it's still a password. I don't think that opens anything. It opens to the treasure. Don't you? Haven't you read this story? Uh, I have not had any real life experiences in which open sesame worked. No. Oh, well, you're just missing out. Yes. Well, I guess so. That's fine. Uh, moving on. <laughs> this week in science news, uh, a scientific analysis of actual joke headlines has discovered the algorithm for creating witty one-liners. So you could use that uh, for you, Gary. very weird. And I don't need any help with my one-liners. <laughs> 
okay. Uh, so <laughs> researchers attempted to ID the ingredients of satire by comparing uh, satiric headlines to serious ones, and the results were presented at the AAAI conference on artificial intelligence this last week, revealing how strategically changing words in a serious statement can make it satirical. Interesting. Yep. So besides allowing for like AI bots to write their own jokes, uh, it's also a potential method for filtering out uh, satire articles versus uh, fake news that are presenting themselves as real. So that'll be very helpful for online, especially social media sites that are trying to, to help weed out the fake news. So this only has to do with AI and the fact that the AI can write their own jokes? Yeah, they can now write their own jokes. Pretty cool, huh? Wow. <laughs> well, like I said, it has other uses. Uh, fortunately, the key ingredient that researchers are calling uh, a false analogy isn't enough by itself to build an AI capable of just pumping out its own witty remarks naturally like you wouldn't know that you were talking to an AI. Mm -hmm. It's still a little clunky in that, so they're looking for some other uh, aspects to kind of use to help that out. But, you know, a lot of progress, and like they said, you know, once uh, once you can talk to a, a robot or an AI and not know that that's what you're talking to, uh, that's when the world ends. That would make sense. <laughs> also, they're clunky because they're metal. That is true. Well, these bots are mostly computer bots. I knew you were going to say something. You're something welcome. to the contrary. You're welcome. <laughs> we also have, interestingly enough, uh, new findings from a 21-month observation uh, which cast doubt on ideas of what drives the Atlantic Ocean's circulation and brings into question whether or not climate change is sh is slowing the circulation as much as previously thought. So, Interesting. Let me be clear. This research is not about the legitimacy of climate change. Uh, this is about what factors play into the speed of what's called the ocean's conveyor belt, also known as the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulatory System, or AMOC for short. Uh, wow. So until now, it was believed that the sinking of cold fresh water uh, in the Labrador Sea between Greenland and Canada was a large factor, uh, which was supported by climate simulations, which showed that the circulation might slow down as the climate continues to warm, melting, uh, you know, icebergs and, and ice pack and, and having that cold water sink. Uh, but this 21 month long observation shows that the Labrador Sea's influence was significantly less compared to that of other North Atlantic Ocean regions east of Greenland. So that's, that's interesting. Very different. I have never heard of most of that. <laughs> yep. Uh, it's amazing that all of the research is being done on climate science because climate is a very large, uh, complex system. Uh, and we're constantly finding new parts to it. I mean, when you're looking at uh, things like climate change on the long haul, it's actually a lot easier to predict overall weather as over the course of, you know, thousands of years than it is to predict the weather tomorrow. That's really interesting. Because it's trends, right? Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of little teeny variables that we don't know that can affect what's going to happen tomorrow. But when you take all of those and you average them out over long areas of time, we get pretty good at trending. Um, so in a new segment I'm starting called, no, it wasn't aliens. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say, no, it wasn't me. No, it wasn't me. No, it wasn't aliens. This week we have our first installment of what I like to call, no, it wasn't aliens. A oh, huge okay. floating ice disc appears perfectly circular in a river in a suburb of Portland, slowly spins as people watch it kind of wander around uh, its origins. It's really interesting. I'll have to put up a picture on this on our uh, Twitter, or uh, I think I've got a, a post scheduled on our Facebook page. You can check that out. Uh, it's, a, it's like 100 yards in diameter. 
uh, and it's it looks almost perfectly circular. If you get up close, you realize it's not quite on the edge, but it's just slowly spinning in the middle, and it looks like it was like created deliberately by somebody or something. That's really weird. Yes, uh, but if you actually look at it, the slow spin of the ice is actually causing the water erosion on the ice to occur equally around the entire edges. Uh, and when you, they're measuring it, they're measuring that it's actually decreasing in size uh, slowly. Obviously, there's no aliens around doing it. But yeah, people were like, oh, it's aliens. Aliens did it. <laughs> that's that's a weird answer. Yeah. I just, I, I don't know. I guess when you think of ice, you think square because we make ice cubes. Mm-hmm. And so I think that round ice kind of throws people off. That could be. I don't know. It definitely, it does look weird. Like I can understand uh, coming up to this and assuming that it was like some form of man-made structure. I don't know about alien-made, but definitely man-made. So are you putting up a video or are you putting up a picture? I'm going to put up some pictures. Okay. Uh, There is a video. uh, Maybe I'll link to a video too. Maybe I can do that. But yeah, so if you guys have any ideas for our new No It Wasn't Aliens uh, segment, you can email them to me at chris at dash of science.com. If we decide to use your submission, uh, then I'll send you a free sticker for Dash of Science. How about Ooh, that? Ooh, stickers. Stickers are awesome. Uh, some rules to the submissions. It can't be things from like forever ago. Like I'm not talking about like the pyramids or Stonehenge. I'm looking for stuff like in the news in the last month or so. Uh, so yeah, if you find something, send it our way. I was totally going to send in Stonehenge. I knew you were. I said that just for you. Also, you don't need any more stickers. You can, you've got stickers here. I don't have a single dash of science sticker. There's a big stack of stickers right there. That doesn't mean I have one. Well, you can take one. You're welcome. See, see what I do for you? I can't reach it from here. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and get on with our first segment, Apollo 1. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Oh, that looks beautiful from here, It has a stark beauty all its own. It's uh, like much of the high desert of uh, the United States. It's uh, different, but it's very pretty out here. Ask anyone around, and they will surely tell you that the Apollo Project is the most internationally known event to ever occur in any space agency around the world. An estimated 530 million people watched the televised event, hearing this recording from Neil Armstrong's Apollo 11 mission. This mission, as well as the follow-up missions, did not come from nothing. The Apollo mission's goals were to establish the technology to meet national interests in space, achieve permanence in space for the U.S., carry out a program of scientific exploration of the moon, and develop human capability to work in a lunar environment. But this isn't the story of Apollo 11. This is the story of Apollo 1, initially designated as AS-204. All right, so Apollo 1, which was initially designated as AS-204, Dash 204 was the first crewed mission of the U.S. Apollo program, uh, the program created to land the first man on the moon, essentially. I mean, it is the iconic uh, mission from NASA. It is what, uh, up until, you know, recently, everybody knew NASA, knew the Apollo, uh, the Apollo program, right? So, yeah. uh, Essentially, I guess, what did you know about Apollo mission in general before doing research for the show? Um, I think I saw the movies that have the Apollos in them, but I I didn't know anything about it at all. So like the Tom Hanks Apollo 13 and uh, the fake Apollo 
whatever other movie, the horror movie. Oh, yeah. I didn't think what about one that, was one. that one. I can't. I think it was like Apollo 8 or something. Apollo 18? Or 13 or something like that. I don't remember. It must have been Apollo 18 because 17 was the last uh, Apollo mission and it's supposedly around the 18th. Anyways, not important. Anyways, that's the extent of your knowledge. Yeah, I had no further knowledge. All right. Well, it was originally planned as the first low Earth orbital test of the Apollo command and service module with crew. Uh, so it was supposed to launch on 21 February 1967. What does that mean? Like, what were they supposed to do exactly? Essentially, it was just going to uh, launch them up into an orbit, right? Do an orbit around the Earth uh, at low Earth orbit. It's just a designation of what altitude you're at. Uh, and then come back down. Okay. So it's mostly just like a test of functionality, make sure everything's working, prove that kind of uh, everything works and can keep people alive. I mean, they do all of that testing beforehand before they put people in there, obviously. I would hope so. But it's, it's just stage testing, right? You don't fly to the moon before you've tested flying low Earth orbit. That makes sense. So that's what the original uh, stuff was planned for. So the crew of Apollo 1 mission consisted of two seasoned astronauts, Virgil, Gus Grissom, and Ed White, which was the first American spacewalker. Not the first spacewalker, but the first American spacewalker. Because back here in this time frame, remember, we were still coming in second to Russia a lot of the time during the space race at this point. All right. So, uh, and then also had rookie astronaut Roger Chaffee. So... Lieutenant Colonel Gus Grissom was born April 3rd, 1926. He was one of the seven original NASA Project Mercury astronauts, the Mercury 7, as they were called, uh, as well as a member of Project Gemini, which occurred before that, and which are two pre preceding Apollo programs, essentially working up to, to having uh, the capabilities of launching people into space and landing on the moon. Uh, so he was the second American to fly in space and the first member of the NASA Astronaut Corps to fly in space twice. That's cool. Yep. So Grissom also had a long, honorable military career. He was a World War II and Korean War veteran, the recipient of the Distinguished Flying Cross, the Air Medal with Oak Leaf Cluster. What does uh, that mean? Oak Leaf Cluster is essentially awards that are like that. When you get awarded them more than once, you add an Oak Leaf Cluster to the, uh, the ribbon, essentially. Oh, so it just okay. means he is awarded it twice. Uh, and he was the two-time recipient of the NASA Distinguished Service Medal. So NASA has their own set of actual official uh, government awards, if you didn't know that. I did not know that. Yep. Uh, and as well as being awarded the, the Congressional Space Medal of Honor uh, posthumously. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of the medals of honor uh, are awarded that way. That is a shame. Yeah. Um, Grissom earned a degree in mechanical engineering from Purdue University, which I've actually found uh, is a very popular university, at least at the center that I work at. It seems like it's almost uh, a cult of people <laughs> who've gotten their degrees at Purdue. Uh, and he got his Bachelor's of Science at the U.S. Air Force Institute of Technology in Aeromechanics. Uh, and he received his test pilot training here at Edwards Air Force Base. Oh, that's cool. Yep. There's a lot of history on this base in spaceflight and in aeronautics. Uh, and then before or after that, he was assigned as a test pilot to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. Uh, Grissom was selected as one of the Mercury 7 astronauts, like we said, and served as a pilot for the Mercury Redstone 4. Uh, the second American suborbital flight, which on recovery blew off the capsule hatch and uh, started to fill with water and sink, 
Uh, obviously, he was safely recovered, but so he's he's had his fair share of history of things not exactly going right. Yeah, that seems to be a lot of failure in this time. Yep. Uh, and he also served as the command pilot for Gemini 3, which successfully completed a three-orbit mission in 65, uh, and then was selected for the commander of the Apollo 1 mission. So at this time, all the astronauts were military. There weren't any uh, people selected from like civilian jobs like there are now, and they were all pretty much pilots. So of the three-person uh, crew in Apollo 1, you had the command pilot, the senior pilot, and the pilot. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> so uh, obviously not all three of them are flying at the same time, but all three of them were capable and trained on flying. That sounds uh, really useful. Yeah, it definitely was. Um, And then we have uh, Lieutenant Colonel Edward Higgins White II, born November 14th, 1930, was an American aeronautical engineer, U.S. Air Force officer, test pilot, and NASA astronaut who worked both projects, Gemini and Apollo. He said both of these guys were seasoned veteran uh, astronauts, at least as much as anybody could be for being from the first and second class of astronauts, right? Yeah, there wasn't a lot going on for (laughs) you to get your stripes. Yep. So uh, White is probably most famously known for being the first American to walk in space. Uh, He was one of the second group of astronauts chosen in 62, and he served as a pilot of Gemini 4 before the Apollo mission. Uh, It was said that he was so amazed by his spacewalk, right, that he didn't want to come back in. uh, (laughs) And he literally had to be ordered to come back in from uh, headquarters. That's pretty funny. uh, And when he came in, he's, he's quoted as saying, I'm coming back in and it's the saddest moment of my life. Like that's how amazing the view was and the experience was for him. I bet that's crazy. Yeah. There's, I mean, once you see stuff like that, I mean, there's lots of times we talk about like Buzz Aldrin and stuff wrote a book about how, you know, landing on the moon was the pinnacle of his career and he did it so young for how long, you know, I mean, he's still alive today. Uh, like he went through a lot of depression after that, right? Yeah. Like what do you do next? Yeah. But, uh, so white graduated from West point, uh, and he had a bachelor of science and was commissioned as a second Lieutenant in the U S air force. And during this time, he also competed for a spot on the U S Olympics team in the 400 meter hurdles. And he missed by making the team by one tenth of a second. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. So there's a history here. Uh, we, as we go farther in, in space and we get more civilians and we start to open it up more, like you see more and more everyday people. But when the, really the beginning, you're getting like the cream of the crop of the qualities, at least that they're looking for. Right. I mean, this guy, not only an astronaut and a test pilot uh, and a, you know, generally good, you know, Air Force officer also, uh, you know, is in physical shape enough to contend for a spot on the Olympic team. I could go try out for the Olympics, but I guarantee you I'm not going to miss it by one tenth of a second. Yeah, same. I'm going to miss it by a lot of tenths of a second. <laughs> I'm going to miss it by full on hours. Yes. <laughs> I just stopped running. <laughs> So yeah, these are the type. These are the people that they are selecting to do this work at the time, and uh, a lot of them tend to be, you know, stereotypical uh, military alpha uh, personalities. But I mean, you needed that because you needed people who are go getters, who are leaders, who were take you know the bulls by the horn, so to speak, and, and do these sorts of things. It's very impressive. Mm-hmm. 
White also earned an MS from the University of Michigan in aeronautical engineering and was selected to attend the U.S. Air Force Test Pilot School here at Edwards Air Force Base, uh, where he earned his credentials as a test pilot. And then he also went off to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So I'm I'm pretty positive that uh, that White and Grissom probably knew each other uh, before the astronaut program. There's a lot of greatness that comes through Edwards. There is. Yeah, this is where most, if I, I don't want to say all because I don't know for sure, but this is where most everybody who trained as a, as a test pilot uh, went to be trained. And most of the astronauts of this time were former test pilots. Like that was the path that you took to become an astronaut. Uh, Neil Armstrong, obviously, uh, our center is named after him now. He came through here and was a test pilot and... He landed here several times in the shuttle. Like, there's just, like I said, I love how much history there is here. It's pretty amazing. Um, White was selected as the senior pilot of Apollo 1, uh, and among his numerous awards were the senior astronaut wings. And I tried to look up uh, what senior astronaut wings were, and NASA, as far as I can tell, doesn't have a distinction between senior and just regular astronaut wings. That's weird. Uh, but there were FAA regulated senior astronaut wings i'm not sure if that's what it is but i couldn't find anywhere that actually distinguished what the difference was uh, my assumption would be that it's probably based on number of launches or number of hours in space or uh like how altitude like what altitude you reach it'd be something like that would be my guess um, and then he also was awarded the NASA, NASA Exceptional Service Medal and the Golden Plate Award for Science and Exploration, uh, and also was awarded the uh, Congressional Space Medal of Honor posthumously. Hum, hum, I don't know why that word is so hard for me to say. I don't know. That's an easy one. Yeah. Well, I'll let you say it from now on. Humus. Lee. Lee. <laughs> so... And then that leaves us with Lieutenant Commander Roger B. Chaffee. Uh, was born February 15th, 1935, the youngest of the three. Uh, I believe he was uh, 33-ish, 32. Man, I'm missing out. I'm already 33. Mm -hmm. and I'm, Well, I'm almost 33, and I am not astronauting. Yep. Uh, and then he was also the only naval aviator, the other two being Air Force. Uh, Chaffee served as the capsule communicator known as Capcom on Project Gemini. So when you're in the control room uh, for these programs, you have, I mean, you've seen the control room that we have here at uh, Armstrong, right? Yes, I have. So those are a very small size compared to the control rooms for space programs. Is it more like a, what you would see in a movie? Yeah, a lot of those are based out of, uh, based off of the Houston control room. So um, in those control rooms, you've got entire teams for each area of the spacecraft, and those teams speak to their lead, and their lead speak to usually like the test controller or the, the project manager or somebody else who they're speaking with. But the only person in that entire room who is generally allowed to speak to the actual astronauts is Capcom. That's crazy. Yes. So that is what his job was before being selected uh, for his first, basically, space flight for Apollo. So he graduated from Purdue University also with a degree in aeronautical engineering, uh, which afterwards he completed his Navy training as, and was commissioned as an ensign in the U.S. Navy. Uh, he participated in over 82 classified missions during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Wow. Yeah. So that's the time frame that we're at here. 
Uh, and just five years after uh, commissioning, he submitted his application to be considered for one of uh, the astronauts in the third group of NASA astronauts. So in this crew, you've got the first group of astronauts, someone from the second group, and someone from the third group. So that's Do you think that was intentional? No, I think it just happened to be the way that it fell. Uh, they had a lot of people on backup and stuff from various groups, but uh, you know, I'm not really sure how they selected uh, people to fly. I assume that they always wanted to have some new person fly to be able to rotate through, right? You don't want all your senior people uh, on a flight, and then when they leave or if something happens, you're left with a bunch of people who have no experience. Yeah, that's very true. So that would be my guess. But uh, he also noted that he was interested in going to test pilot school uh, for astronaut status. Like I said, that was the path to go through, uh, essentially, to get that. Uh, and then Chaffee was awarded the, the Navy Air Medal twice and, of course, the Congressional Space Medal of Honor. So, uh, and then after serving as Capcom uh, for Project Gemini, he was assigned his first space flight assignment as the pilot for the first manned Apollo Saturn flight, AS-204. So he was the pilot uh, White was the senior pilot, and Grissom was the uh, command pilot. All right. So that is the crew of Apollo 1. So when you were doing your reading, uh, you mentioned that you were having some problems understanding some of the terminology for the craft and stuff like that well yeah i went on wikipedia first Mm -hmm. and like it's all technical jargon and it's really hard to understand it's like it was written by somebody who is a like an astronaut if that makes sense and so i had to go to outside sources yeah if you look at wikipedia for a lot of things when you get into technical stuff you actually find that most of those pages for wikipedia on technical aspects are curated by people like professors at universities or professionals in that field, people who really know what they're talking about, and they're written at that level. The good news is they're usually cross-referenced with hyperlinks to other things. The bad news is those other things are also uh, also technical. <laughs> so yeah. it's hard to find an entry-level uh, method into getting into some of these concepts, uh, you know, because some of them, they just require that you have the background to understand them. Yeah. Um, So with the craft, uh, it's important to understand that the Apollo Command and Service Module was larger and considerably more complex than pretty much any other spacecraft that had been designed up to this point. Why was it so different? It's because we were going to the moon. Like, nothing else that we had done had compared. Everything else was to spend a minimum amount of time uh, breaking things like, you know, to get the first American into space or to orbit around the Earth a couple of times for like a day. Like nothing that we had done had come anywhere close to this complex of a mission before. And in all honesty, if we weren't actively competing with Russia to make it there first, you probably could have easily added on another five to ten years of tests and baby steps to getting to that point. But we just didn't have that time because the greatest push at this point was really in in pride uh, of our country, you know, and not wanting to come in second to something so huge to uh, the USSR at the time. So, yeah, that's it's an interesting drive that we don't really have anymore. It is. It's really kind of what we call the perfect storm of what's going on. You have the space race with the Russians, uh, and then you have President Kennedy who made his proclamation and then was assassinated. So you have this huge fever amongst the American public to 
push forward with his his proclamation, which was a really, really strong ask. Like if he hadn't been assassinated, uh, we also might not have made it to the moon when we did. Uh, It's just it gave that support for the public to allow the politicians to give the funding. I mean, we funded the space program at a level during that time that I don't think we've seen since. Yeah, it was major amounts of funding. So and I mean, and you need that to do that kind of work. But uh, the craft itself in a spacecraft review meeting held a week before the spacecraft was delivered. Uh, the company that was building the the capsule, the command unit was uh, Northern or North American, I believe is what it's called. It's called North American Aviation, uh, North American for short. And the astronauts expressed a concern for the amount of flammable materials that were in the cabin. Uh, I guess there was a whole bunch of nylon and Velcro uh, pretty much used extensively throughout the craft, uh, which unknown at the time, but Velcro apparently burns really fast in a pure oxygen environment. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. I wonder why it's so different. Uh, I think it just has to do with the pressure probably on top of the, the oxygen. I mean, you need oxygen to burn right mm-hmm. like you need a fuel source and you need a heat and uh yeah so uh while the spacecraft did receive a passing score the astronauts were still not fully convinced that it was safe uh and so they took a crew portrait of themselves and they've kind of got their heads bowed and their hands together as if they're praying and then there's a little inscription on it that reads it isn't that we don't trust you joe but this time we've decided to go over your head and Joe was in reference to Joseph Shea, the Apollo spacecraft program office manager, pretty much the person in charge of this program. All right. Uh, and he was one of the deciding figures on craft safety. So uh, I thought it was kind of interesting. It, it's kind of funny if it wasn't foreboding, right? Yeah, um, for sure. And for his part, Shea did tell the manufacturers to remove all the flammable materials from the cabin, uh, which was mostly used for like holding tools and equipment in place. Uh, so it didn't really have any other function other than that. And But he didn't like personally follow up on that to make sure that it was done. And we'll find out more about that uh, a little later. But yeah, so that was kind of interesting little pieces, knowing what happened that we can see going through here that like, man, why wasn't that a bigger red flag? Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the craft was shipped to Kennedy Space Center with 113 significant incomplete engineering changes. That means somebody gone went through these designs and pointed out 113 different things that were major things that should be changed, uh, and it shipped and arrived to Kennedy that way. So they never got changed. It was they just did, a list. They did get changed, but they had to do it at Kennedy instead of having them done at the manufacturer's place where they should have been done. Uh, and on top of that, an additional 623 change orders were made after delivery. Uh, wow. One of the problems that this had is that the simulation crew, the guys that were updating the, the simulation craft, had a very, very hard time keeping up with the changes that were going on constantly with the actual shuttle itself. And apparently it's, uh, I guess, Grissom hung a lemon on the simulator as kind of a point of frustration, calling the simulator a lemon. Uh, so that's, again, one of those things that's funny if it wasn't foreboding. Yeah, uh, for sure. And during the testing, the environment control unit uh, in the command module, which basically is responsible for helping, you know, control the environment within the shuttle. It's got uh, coolant and water and stuff that it passes and pumps through. Uh, But it had to be sent back twice for major design flaws. Uh, 
and one of which was that it was leaking this corrosive propellant or uh, not propellant but uh coolant um and also at the same time one of the propellant tanks had a rupture that they had to fix so there's just things are just going on you know one after the other on this thing uh and then finally after all of the outstanding hardware problems were fixed the craft was reassembled and completed a successful altitude chamber test with the backup crew. Uh, and it's interesting here because on the final report, it says that the backup crew was completely satisfied with the condition and the performance of the spacecraft. Uh, but there's a, a documentary or I think it's a book actually called uh, Lost Moon, The Perilous Voyage of Apollo 13. It's co-written by astronaut James uh, Lovell. And it's written in there that uh, the commander of the backup team made it clear that he was not pleased at all with what he'd seen. Uh, and apparently he warned Grissom and Shay that while he couldn't really put his finger on exactly why, something about the ship made him uncomfortable and something just didn't ring right in his words. And he told Grissom that uh, he should get out at the first sign of any troubles. That's really weird. Mm -hmm. And I, I just find it interesting that that's not in the actual final report. Yeah, that's an interesting thing to get stepped over. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if, I mean, it's hard to tell when you're, when you're talking, you know, from another person's perspective on what happened or what didn't. But, you know, you also know sometimes things get left out of reports, especially at now when there is so much pressure to get things done fast, right? Yeah, you can't take somebody's gut feeling mm -hmm. in a time when you're being pushed that hard. Nope. So... Apollo 1 scheduled to launch on February 21st, 1967 uh, as a first manned Apollo mission, as we said. And prior to the live launch, several simulated test runs uh, are conducted. And so on January 27th of 1967, they had a full what they call plugs out test to determine whether the spacecraft would operate uh, nominally on simulated internal power while detached from all cables and umbilical cords. That's what plugs out meant. Uh, and this was an essential test that had to be passed in order uh, to be cleared for the live launch, essentially. So at 1 p.m. Eastern, uh, Grissom, Chaffee, and White entered the command module fully pressure suited, strapped into their seats, hooked up to the spacecraft's uh, oxygen and, and comm system. And Grissom immediately notices a strange odor in the air of his suit, and he describes it as sour buttermilk. Uh, so they pause the countdown, they halt, they take some air samples, but nobody can figure out what the odor is. Uh, they can't figure out what it is or where it's coming from. Uh, and so they continue on. They they restart the countdown and, and But when they think something was leaking? Well, the problem is, is like what smells like sour buttermilk? I don't know, but like now you're like uh gas leak smells like rotten eggs I, I mean, mean that is true but i mean they didn't have like natural gas or or propane on there so it's really hard nothing on there should have had that smell was the problem that's weird yeah so and what do you do if you can't find the source and and the odor i, I don't know if the odor went away or if they just became acclimated to it or if they just dealt with it or what but uh they decided to push on so uh three minutes in the hatch installation was started, which consisted of three parts. So you had the removable inner hatch, uh, which pulled out and set on the ground inside the command module. Uh, you had a, a uh, removable, let's see, what was it? The hinged outer hatch, uh, which was part of the heat shielding, I believe. And then you had the outer hatch cover, which was part of the outer structural uh, piece. 
And so after all the hatches were sealed, the air in the cabin was replaced with pure oxygen at 16.7 PSI, which is about 2 PSI higher than atmospheric pressure. And the reason why they're doing this, uh, they started off with increasing the pressure to help push all of the nitrogen out of the atmosphere of the cabin because they were worried if there was any uh, uh, basically rapid decompression that they could potentially get bends if there was any nitrogen in there. Like that's what happens when you come up from deep diving too fast, the nitrogen yeah. in your air, right? Uh-huh. Uh, so that's why they were running uh, at pure oxygen. And when you're running at pure oxygen, so the reason that we breathe the way that we do and the combination, well, besides the fact that we evolved to do so, we don't actually use nitrogen, which is predominant. I think it's like 70-something percent of what our air is that we breathe. Uh, we don't actually use that inside of our bodies per se. Uh, what we do is we use that to get the pressure that we need in order to get the amount of oxygen out of the air into our lungs. So if you have pure oxygen at regular uh, atmospheric pressure, you actually have a hard time getting in the, the oxygen into your lungs, into your, uh, what are they called, the aerials or the whatever, the sacs? The broccoli or something like that? Something, I, th- I think there's a word that starts with an A, but anyways. That's probably right. Um, so they have to keep, they have to pump up the pressure in order to ensure that you get the right amount of oxygen when you breathe in. So you can actually survive in pure oxygen with the right pressure. Um, and then once uh, launch happened and they were up significantly into the time uh, line that they would start to decompress a little bit and bring that pressure back down. The other side to having the pressure so high is remember that inside hatch opens inside. And one of the reasons they did that is because it's a lot easier to ensure that that hatch stays in place by increasing the pressure inside and essentially pushing it against the wall of the capsule. Whereas if it closed from the outside, you're going to be pushing against a latch instead of a wall. Does that make sense? That does make sense. So that was literally part of one of the designs. Uh, Another issue that occurred is that Grissom's mic seemed to be stuck open. Uh, It's called a a hot mic, essentially, anytime that you just have a mic that's that's stuck open. Uh, And it's assumed that that was kind of part of the comms issues that they were having. They had some sort of loopback issue. Uh, Essentially, they were in the the command module for like 30 almost 32 minutes i think and the majority of that was literally just trying to get their communications so they had several different communications lines they were using vhf frequencies they were using s-band and for whatever reason they were just having a hard time uh talking with uh, the test coordinators so i'll play a clip of it and you can listen and just imagine 30 minutes of of stuff like this over and over again trying to get things to work not being heard repeating yourself really interesting that so many things went wrong mm-hmm. and we during the investigation we really start understanding like why but uh 
So the operations in the checkout building uh, and the complex 34 block house control room, these are all the places they're trying to talk to. Uh, kept them in there doing their comm checks again for 30 minutes. It's very frustrating uh, to Grissom. Essentially, I mean, you can tell how how frustrated he is. Uh, I mean, he's it's pretty funny. He says, you know, how do we expect to get to the moon, right? Uh, if we can't communicate three buildings across, or you know, like that. And you can yeah. hear obviously the his quote there. But uh, so it really shows the amount of frustration. But still, like the amount of decorum that he holds for the most time. He's still professional. Still does. You know, I mean, I can easily imagine people who would be swearing and pissed off and probably just, you know, leave at that point, right? Yeah, for sure. um, So now we're kind of on to the accident. Now, there is a full audio clip of the 35 rough minutes of this entire mission of the checks and whatever uh, to include the fire itself and the fire itself it can't be longer than five seconds and i'm going to include bits and pieces of the audio clips beforehand and afterwards but i decided to leave those five seconds out because it's very emotional it's not suitable for all audiences uh but if you do want to hear it there's lots of people that have it up for just you know remembering it there's analysis because it's very important to do analysis of the voices uh, to figure out what was going on and who was saying what, because at the time they, they really didn't have a clear view of, of what had happened. Right. So uh, just to let you know, there, there will be pieces of that in here, but no, none of that five second clip. It's uh, a good choice. Yeah. So uh, the crew members were passing the time by running through their checklists again. Uh, nothing out of the ordinary occurred until a momentary increase in the AC bus uh, to had a voltage increase and you can hear it on the audio line. It's just an increase in static. Uh, And then nine seconds later, someone, uh, the assumption is it's Grissom yelled across the channel. Hey, fire. That was the unexpected voltage increase right there. So while this entire part of the transmission only lasts five seconds, again, I'm not including that in the podcast. Uh, The clip essentially ends with a cry out of pain, followed by a few seconds later of the spacecraft test conductor, uh, Skip Siobhan, attempting to make contact with the crew again, asking them to basically confirm that they've that they've they were able to latch uh, unlatch the hatch. So an investigation afterwards found that the intensity of the fire caused the pressure to rise to 29 PSI. Uh, it ended up rupturing the module's inner wall 
the flames uh, came and the smoke came rushing outside the command module through the open access panels to two levels of the pad service structure. Uh, this is that giant tower that you see uh, for launch. Mm-hmm. Uh, the intense heat and dense smoke uh, was an issue for the gas masks that the people, for the rescue people and the, and the pad workers had. They had gas masks that were designed to handle toxic fumes, but they weren't designed to handle like the smoke from a fire like this. So it prevented the ground crew's uh, attempt at rescuing the astronauts initially. Sad. Yeah. During the second phase of the fire, air came rushing up and caused all the flames to spread across the cabin. Uh, And finally, at the last phase of the fire, the oxygen had been completely consumed and the fire became mostly quenched, uh, leaving high concentrations of carbon monoxide and heavy smoke to fill the cabin. It took five minutes for pad workers to open all three hatches and they couldn't drop the inner hatch. It was stuck. Uh, It took them a while. Once they got inside, they couldn't immediately find the bodies of the astronauts. The heat of the fire had ended up fusing the astronauts where they were, and it took an additional 90 minutes to remove their bodies. In a testament to the training and discipline of the astronauts, Grissom had removed his restraints and had moved to the area to uh, undock the pressure release valve behind White. White had been attempting to remove the inner hatch and Chaffee was still strapped in his seat where he was required to be to remain in communications during emergencies, exactly as the emergency procedure required of them. So they're in the middle of a fire, an intense fire, and all this stuff is going on, and they are still so disciplined that they are doing exactly as they were trained to do in such emergencies. That's good. They give them training. Yep. So it was found that White could not open the hatch Uh, because of the unexpectedly high pressure and the fact that the hatch was designed to open inwards. Uh, Also, like I said, there was normally supposed to be a little bit of pressure, and so there was a pressure release valve, essentially, that Grissom was in charge of releasing. Uh, And so they weren't really sure at that point why that didn't happen. Um, Following a previous failure of Gemini 8, uh, they kind of changed the way that NASA handles their investigations, And so the NASA administrator, James Webb, who is the namesake for the James Webb Telescope, still under construction, uh, requested that President Johnson allow NASA to handle the investigation according to its new established policies uh, and promising to be truthful and assign blame responsibly. So the initial investigation team named the Apollo 204 Review Board was chaired by Langley Research Center Director Floyd Thompson and included astronaut Frank Borman, spacecraft designer Maxim uh, Faget, Cornell University professor Frank Long, and uh, North American's chief engineer for Apollo, George Jeffs, and then four others. On February 1st, Frank Long left the board, followed the next day by George Jeffs. I could not find any real references on why that happened. That's really interesting. Yeah, so uh, Frank Long was replaced by another member, but as far as I can tell, George Jeffs was not. After extensive investigation and carefully taking the entire spacecraft apart piece by piece, which they first practiced doing on one of the other crafts to make sure that they could do it without damaging anything, the final issue, uh, final report was issued on April 5th, 1967. So an autopsy determined that there were severe third degree burns over one third of Grissom's body half of White's body and a quarter of Chaffee's body with uh, about equal amounts of damage to their space pressurized suits. 
The primary cause of death for all three was cardiac arrest caused by high concentrations of carbon monoxide. It was believed that the burns occurred mostly post-mortem. That's so a relief. It sounds like the death was pretty quick. I mean, the whole thing, like I said, lasted roughly five seconds. Uh, what's assumed to happen is the initial uh, breaks in their pressurized suits occurred, which caused large amounts of the carbon monoxide from the fire to enter into their their air systems, uh, which resulted in the in the cardiac arrest. So the review board ID'd several major factors which combined to the to the form the disaster essentially. So the first one was an ignition source related to the wiring carrying spacecraft power and vulnerable plumbing carrying a combustible and corrosive coolant. So the, basically they concluded that a, a severe uh, electric arc occurred near the floor in the lower left section near the environmental control unit, which had already showed an issue of leaking combustible corrosive coolant, but had supposedly been repaired. Uh, specifically, a silver-plated copper wire running through the ECU unit had become stripped of its insulation by repeated opening and closing of the access door, uh, which was near a junction in the ethylene glycol cooling line. So essentially, this arc near this cooling line that was leaking caused an electrolysis, which was capable of causing a violent exothermic reaction. They didn't know this at the time, that silver and, and glycol would do this. And experiments later confirmed that the silver-plated wiring would do this, but that regular copper wouldn't. So essentially, they put forth a rule from that point forward to never use silver-plated anything anywhere near any uh, cooling systems. Well, that's good at least. Yeah. The second thing they found was that the pure oxygen atmosphere at higher than atmospheric pressures also contributed to the issue. So at such high oxygen and PSI, materials that were not normally considered to be highly flammable would burst into flame, uh, like the Velcro, as we talked about. Yes. Uh, number three, a cabin sealed with a hatch cover, which could not be quickly removed at high pressure. So this was by design, as we talked about before. Uh, so the higher pressure inside the cabin would ensure that the hatch stayed closed. And uh, to be removed, like I said, a vent valve first needed to be opened. So the reason that Grissom wasn't able to open this valve is because it was directly behind where the initial fire started, so he couldn't access it. That's crazy. Yep. Number four, an extensive distribution of combustible materials in the cabin. All that nylon and Velcro that was supposedly supposed to be removed. 34 square feet. They basically described it as almost like carpeting. Well, yeah, apparently it actually had been all removed at Shay's orders, but for some reason that nobody was able to really figure out, it was all replaced before it delivered to K KSC. So that's, I don't know why, but apparently somebody came through and was like, oh, they wanted Velcro on it. Why isn't this on here? And they put it all back on. That's crazy. Yep. And no one's going to own up to that. Oh man, the investigation was harsh and it was crazy and intense in every manner, shape, or form. Uh, but lastly, the review, the review board uh, ID'd the inadequate emergency preparedness on behalf of the rescue teams also occurred to the death. And I kind of disagree with it. I don't disagree that it was an issue, but I disagree that it would have done anything. 
Um, I read that they just didn't have enough safety precautions put out because it was an unfueled test, so they didn't think that there was going to be fire. Right. They Basically, they failed to identify that a fire was a reasonable hazard, and so like you said, yeah, they didn't have any appropriate gear on hand. And that's why I'm saying, yes, that is absolutely accurate. They did not, but again, five seconds is how long this took. Five seconds and lost all audio all everything um i mean maybe it could have lasted a little longer on the inside but uh you know and there just wasn't communications because the the lines burned but i mean we're not talking a lot of time even if they had the proper gear i guess maybe if they could have uh put out the flames on the outside once it it burst through but i mean i don't know i just i don't think even if they had all the proper gear on the outside there was too much. I mean, there's four other issues on the inside that contributed to this. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, the incident caused a major political fallout. Like I said, the investigation and everything, uh, there was investigations from both House and the Senate. There was investigations done into reports of previous poor performances by North American Aviation, which was, you know, like I said, the contractors that built uh, the command module. And they were found to be all true eventually. Uh, during this time, the Phillips report uh, was a thing. It wasn't a real report. So NASA has a thing what's called like a tiger team. I mean, basically putting together people to informally investigate uh, and kind of give causes of things and, and stuff of that nature. So uh, Phillips essentially had this tiger uh, team and they created this report of things that they found. Uh, like inadequate quality, schedule delays, cost overruns, uh, and it wasn't an official report, so it wasn't originally given to the congressional investigators. Uh, but one of the people that was being questioned thought that they knew about it, and so started giving information because he didn't want to lie, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but apparently they didn't know about it, and so after that, Congress was accusing James Webb of uh, being deceptive and concealing important program problems from Congress and just all sorts of stuff like that. That sounds like crazy. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because obviously after all was said and done, this guy, you know, uh, James Webb, were naming a pretty expensive and supposedly high-tech telescope after him, right? Yes. So anyways, so a major battle ensued, basically blame between NASA and the contractor, North American Aviation, uh, Webb demanded that Atwood, who was the president of North American, or his chief engineer, Harrison Storms, to resign. Uh, Atwood chose to fire his chief engineer. So there's that. Wow. Yep. Nothing like uh, throwing somebody under the bus, I guess. <sighs> it uh, happens all the time. And unfortunately, program manager Joseph Shea fell to serious abuse of barbiturates and alcohol over the incident. Uh, and he refused to take a leave of absence and he threatened to quit. And eventually they kind of just side shuffled him into a position at NASA headquarters that wasn't really important, I guess, or doing anything enough that he felt slighted and ended up just leaving about two months after that. Wow. So uh, after the disaster and the investigation, a complete uh, review and redesign of the capsule was done, which was good because they found it to be extremely hazardous. Uh, carelessly assembled all like sort of they found like tools that were just left inside the interior of the capsule like not where the crew was but like where tools shouldn't be like That's from crazy. people doing the assembly yeah so and then all manned missions from that point on uh, would use the block two spacecraft not the block one like this one was 
Well, I heard that uh, the technology in your watch has more is more advanced than these entire shuttles were. Yeah, it, that's kind of, I mean, it's not wrong, but it's hard to measure in the way because there's a couple of different ways you can do that. So if you're just measuring like transistor count, we're talking millions more transistors in your phone than there was in the entire Apollo launch system, right? So, yeah. I mean, it, it's not wrong. It is quite amazing, like the difference that that makes. Flew on, on Mercury, flew on Gemini, now you're flying on, uh, on Apollo. Does the law of averages, so far as the possibility of a catastrophic failure, bother you at all, sir? No, you sort of have to put that out of your mind. There's always a possibility that uh, you can have a catastrophic failure, of course. This can happen on any flight. It can happen on the, on the last one as well as the first one. So uh, you just plan as best you can to take care of uh, all of these eventualities. And uh, you get a well-trained crew and you go fly. Gus Grissom, Roger Chaffee were buried at Arlington National Cemetery, and Ed White was buried at West Point Cemetery. Their names are the first among the 21 astronauts and cosmonauts to give their life in pursuit of space exploration. So take a moment, think about their sacrifices and what they've done in the name of human exploration, and remember today on February 7th that these brave men gave their lives in test of human ingenuity and exploration. Thank you for listening to this, one of our most somber episodes of A Dash of Science. The original plan was to do a piece on the Challenger and the Columbia as well, in one episode released today on NASA's Day of Remembrance. But I just couldn't create a concise story that did the men and women who lost their lives justice in 15-minute segments. Please stay tuned next week for a continuation of NASA Day of Remembrance, where we will discuss the Challenger disaster. A Dash of Science is written and produced by 5 Hertz Labs. Music was written and produced by Ghost Tube Music. A Dash of Science is a proud member of the Podfix Network. This was a podcast from the Podfix Network. You can check out more shows like it at podfixnetwork.com.